0: Well, uh, good afternoon. I uh, have to say that my two boys, who love everything cars and trucks, are deeply jealous that I'm in Detroit and they're not. <laughs> uh, my, my dear wife, when um, our, our, our oldest is hoping to be an automotive engineer and he's applying to automo- automotive programs, uh, our youngest has caught the bug and he loves, their favorite day of the month is car and truck magazine when it arrives in the mail. Uh, they. they um, my dear wife, when she decided that we need to help our youngest son, who's infatuated with cars, understand a good theology, she said, I'm just going to write a book to help him understand that God is better than trucks. And that's where the book came from. Just, she wanted to minister to our son, and, uh, and it's just kept on going. So she's written more volumes uh, for, for books and books and books for kids. And I'm exci- thank you for plugging her in uh, and, and those books. The first slide, let me just show you uh, coming up next. I always put this up before I get started. That's a scene from just down the street. Uh, we're a 700-person church in downtown D.C. Uh, we're five blocks from the U.S. Capitol building. So that's the typical generic shot you see on the U.S. news. So my, my only ask of you is that when you see that shot, Pray for us. Uh, there are actually Christians in Washington, D.C., <laughs> as crazy as it sounds. <laughs> and especially after this last year or two in the craziness in our nation, and especially in the U.S. politics over the last few years, we, 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 don't, we don't minister to anyone famous. We minister all their cronies. <laughs> all, all the people who work for politicians are the people who are members of our congregation. Uh, So we're we're, uh, 700, half single, average age 30, often first career, um, trying to figure out, and you know, a certain type. It's a type A personality who thinks they can conquer the world. That's what shows up in Washington. That combined with lawyers, that is our congregation. (laughs) So you know how to pray for us then. But please do, whenever you see that shot, pray that we would bring the gospel to bear as we witness and evangelize in that community, as I raise my own kids in that community, and we try to be a vibrant witness to everyone who lives there on the hill, but everyone who shows up thinking they're going to conquer the world and comes to understand the limits and futility of government and take on an eternal perspective. Uh, we, we have to preach that all the time, and the beauty of it is we have, we have Republicans and Democrats who are committed and saved, and yet they, they come on Sundays, and they worship together, and they fight against each other Monday through Fridays down the street, and yet they're committed to the gospel, and it's just a wonderful ministry to see their work in, 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 in ministering to those who are in D.C., so... I want to talk to you about the ministry of being a shepherd as a pastor. I want to think through together your role in terms of shepherding. So I want you to picture it's Tuesday morning and you're willing away at your inbox at, and the phone rings and you pick it up and it's a woman whose marriage is falling apart. And she wants to talk to you. So after 20 minutes of her venting and crying, you agree to meet her the next day. As a pastor, you've heard the cries of help all too often. Christians struggling with difficulties of sin and suffering in a fallen world. Stubborn depression, heart-wrenching adultery, volcanic anger, chronic miscommunication, guilt-ridden pornography, caloric, calorie-phobic eating disorders, recurrent cancer, hidden same-sex attraction, suicidal thinking. And that's just the short list. You can add much more to that list of the problems that typically show up in your congregation. Life in a fallen world is full of misery. The work of caring for God's people is not easy. Pastors often say to me, counseling, counseling our members is the hardest part of my job. And why why should that surprise us? You know, a typical MDiv degree, 90 credit hours often offer just one counseling class. And then you enter in your first pastorate, and it's it's a crucible of problems you're thrown into. It's trial by fire. You have to figure it out on the go. Under the heat and pressure of pastoral ministry, you, you, you begin to figure out, how do I minister to the people that God has entrusted to me? Well, here's our goal. I want to think about the pastor as shepherd. This is a word to shepherds about shepherding. Do you know how to tell who is a shepherd? Well, he's dirty, he's smelly, he's sweaty, and he's bloodstained because he spent time with the sheep. Shepherding is hard work. It's not for the faint-hearted or the man captivated by fear. So my prayer for you as we think through this together is to encourage you in the task of faithfully shepherding as an under-shepherd, under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. So seven things I want to tell you about the ministry of shepherding. Seven things. Here's your outline. Number one, consider the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Two key words, condescension and sympathy. Condescension. People riddle this word with negative connotations, but what an appropriate thing to say about Jesus. Christ condescended to us. Think Philippians 2. In humility, count others better than yourselves. That's verse 3. Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Verse 8. Our Lord existed on a plane above others and lived in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit and the angels with no sin or suffering to plague him. And yet... He put our interests ahead of himself, humbling himself and being willing to face the greatest of all problems, which is death itself. Christ condescended to us. That's condescension, sympathy. Christ put himself in a position to sympathize with suffering people. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Jesus faced a sin plate world, and unlike us who give in to temptations, he faced the full force of life's temptations. The sinless one never gives in. Jesus understands the full force of temptation better than we do because he did not give in. Commentator Leon Morris says it this way: the sinless one knows the force of the temptation in a way that we who sin do not. We give in before the temptation is fully spent itself. Only he who does not yield knows its full force. So what does that mean? Jesus gets it much better than we do. He understands to a degree that's unconceivable to us because he faced the full force of temptation in a way that we never will. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate double negatives. They they always confuse me. (laughs) But we have a double negative here. What does it say? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Well, what does that mean positively? We do have a high priest who is able to sympathize. That's our Savior. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because Jesus understands the full force of the temptations. He can sympathize with what we're going through. So do you want to be like Jesus? Then sympathize with your people. You want to be like your Savior? Then sympathize with the hurting people. That's what Christ did. Like Jesus, who is willing to condescend to us and face temptations like us, so also we wade into the troubles of our sheep. What we do, we do because Christ took the initiative first and came to sinners and sufferers like us. Number two, our responsibility to shepherd God's flock. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter 5. Let's turn to 1 Peter 5. First four verses, the Apostle Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Well, Peter's writing to Christians who are enduring suffering and are fighting for faith. And he's written, encouraging the believers and testifying that this is the true grace of God to stand fast in it. That's chapter 5, verse 12. In chapter 5, Peter makes an appeal to the elders in the churches of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Chapter 1, verse 1. Interesting that he doesn't use his credentials as an apostle. No, he appeals to them as a fellow elder. He says, I'm an elder like you. He says, This is how we as shepherds carry ourselves as we care for others. Yet he's not too far from reminding us that he's also an apostle as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He was there when Christ was crucified. So Peter says, the very one that we are all going to see one day, I have seen crucified. I personally saw him crucified. And Peter will also share in the glory to be revealed. Suffering precedes glory. This is our hope, that after suffering, glory does come. And Peter holds out this hope to these Christians who are suffering, that their suffering will not end in futility. So it's on the basis of those three things, an appeal as a fellow elder, a personal witness of the sufferings of Christ, and the one who will share in the glory to be revealed, he makes his main point, which is there in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's a call to shepherding. His goal is to encourage you to be shepherds. Now, don't think of the effeminate little statues that are found in Christian bookstores. You know, all the trinkets in that trinket section the cute little things that my kids always run to and want me to buy for them when we're at the store? Don't think of that, no. Shepherding is dirty and manly work. I might, it might require a shepherd on occasion to kill a bear or a lion in order to protect the sheep. As elders, you're called to shepherd the flock of God. You're under shepherds entrusted with God's sheep. What a privilege. What a privilege that God would entrust us with his sheep. It's his flock after all, but he would entrust you to take care of his own. What a distinct privilege to work for the chief shepherd. And he turns to you and he says, take care of my sheep. As under-shepherd, you carry the weighty responsibility of caring for God's own. You work on behalf of God and care for what is God's. What a precious stewardship. Do you see God the care for God's sheep as a burden or a privilege? Many of you will have been in the position that I'll have been in when an email hits my inbox from that member who has been going after you for years and you've been trying to help minister to, and yet when it lands in your inbox, or a message that you get in voicemail, or a a phone call at the church, and when when that happens, you groan. Because it's been a long and hard labor. And many days it feels like a burden to you. Maybe I delay opening that email right away, hoping that somehow it'll magically disappear, but it doesn't. A weak sheep wants my attention, and after hours and days and weeks and months, maybe even years of helping, your care for them can feel like a chore. Love turns into hard labor, patience turns into impatience, and frustrations mount. Can you relate? Surely I'm not the only pastor who's ever been in that position. Have you ever been there before? This is when you remind yourself that these are God's children and not mine. This is God's flock and not my own. And God himself, the great creator and redeemer of the entire universe, he's asked me, of all people, to care for them. Oh, brothers, to care for the lost souls on behalf of the one who loved them far better than ever I than ever I could? What a privilege that is. God himself says, I will love, I will tend to, I will rescue, I will comfort, I'll feed, I'll bind up, I'll protect my own sheep. And therefore, I ask it of you too. Verse 3, the participle, exercising oversight, qualifies the verb shepherd. You're charged with tending, protecting, Guiding, feeding, teaching, calling, exhorting, comforting, binding up, and encouraging the sheep. Shepherding and oversight are the two basic functions of a pastor. This is a fundamental part of what a pastor is expected to do with his time. Now, in light of the preceding section, 1 Peter 4 12 19, Peter's making an appeal to the elders to consider the great suffering of the believers who are among you. These people need the pastor's help. Your job is to shepherd Christians through their suffering. Reminding them of truth. Encouraging them to persevere. Clinging to hope. And now Peter sets out three contrasts there in verse two and three. With each contrast, what do we have? We have a ditch on one side, so you got to be careful not to fall on that into that ditch, and on the other side, you have an aspirational goal. Peter says, not this, but that. He starts out with elders who work not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. You should not shepherd your members out of a sense of obligation, compulsion, but shepherd because you've chosen to pursue this. Do you feel like your ministry is characterized by obligation or joy? Do you feel... Freely and willingly giving over your life to pastor God's flock because you know this is what God has asked you to do. Peter adds a second phrase, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And his warning is, be careful of your motivation. Be really careful of your motivations. Don't use your ministry role for dishonest gain, for greed, or for especially for self-interest. Rather, Peter encourages you to shepherd with eagerness. It's not just that you should be willing, but you should desire to do this. Now, the NIV translators appropriately added the word to serve, to draw out the contrast. Your motivation as a pastor is not self-gain, but an earnest eagerness to serve God's people. Now, which one describes you better? Oh, that God would root out all of the self-interest and corruption that's in my soul that he would get rid of every bit of it that's my prayer for you too and then that third phrase not domineering over those in your charge but being examples of the flock now in a position of authority there's a real danger for a pastor abusing those under his care the term domineering implies a leadership style that's harsh Excessively restrictive and flaunting power. Abuse of authority in any form is wrong. It's absolutely and positively wrong. And the main reason why it's wrong is it lies about God. It lies about the God we represent. It gives a false gospel. You know, I, I know there's a lot that's going on in our Me Too culture. And there's a lot that's been done horribly in churches. But my chief concern is, I want to be a faithful representative of God. And when I misuse my authority, it says something about Him. And I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to do that. Don't ever abuse your privileged positions. Instead of domineering, Peter talks about church members looking at the life of an elder and following his example. Now, throughout Scripture, the apostle calls believers to imitate their way of life and faith. So for you as a pastor, living a life worthy of imitation is not optional. It's a part of the deal. This is what you sign up for. It's a fundamental part of your job. Now, have you or your spouse or your children ever felt the pressure of constantly living up as an example to others? We have. I mean, we certainly have. I mean, I had a church who I was going to go teach for out in California, and it's a younger congregation. And, you know, my kids are 17 down to eight, and this was a few years ago. And the guy said, you know, we need a lot of help with parenting. I just need you to do a session on parenting. I said, buddy, I'm trying to figure it out myself. Are you kidding me? I don't want to stand up in front of 200 people and talk about parenting. That's the last thing I would feel like I want to do. And I declined. I said, I don't want to do that. And he called me again a few days later. I said, I really need you to talk about this because we need help. I said, okay, I will. Not because I feel competent at all, but because I'm called to be an example. And you know, I mean, a pastor's kid, a pastor's kid is uniquely in the fishbowl in a way like no other kid is in the congregation. Pastor's kids feel pressures in ways that no other kids do. And I, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the recklessness that sometimes pastors do in putting their families up as illustrations in ways that they shouldn't. You know, you have to be faithful and thoughtful in how you do anything regards your family up front. I'm just talking about the sheer pressure it is in being an example. It's a pressure that a lot of other people don't get unless you're in the hot seat as a pastor. And yet you're called to be an example. This is a part of the deal. This is a part of what it means to live uh, in, in front of others. Have you ever struggled with being under the microscope of church members? And last part there. Peter ends by pointing elders to the chief shepherd, Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, the elders will receive an unfading crown of glory. When Christ finally returns, your heavenly reward comes. This is your eschatological motivation. Peter says, this is what you're looking forward to. This is what you get in the end if you're faithful. Are you looking forward to this? Are you looking forward to being there one day? Often as we are knee deep in the mud of other people's troubles, we lose sight of heaven itself. And yet you don't want to lose sight of that eschatological motivation. This is God saying, well done. And so I I want to make it through the long haul and be there one day, just as you do. Number three, the goal of our shepherding, maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ is our clear goal. For Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil. What is he toiling for? That we might present everyone mature in Christ. That's what I'm shooting for. I mean, the privilege of being in the congregation that I'm in, they show up as 20-year-olds, and I get, them to, I get to watch them growing up in their faith. I get to watch them as single adults show up and try and figure out, who do I marry? What do I do with my life? And you walk through that, and, you know, they get through dating, then you get them through marriage, and then we start in like, now how do I do this as a parent? And you get them like working through things as parents, and they, they, they show up one day, Having matured through these things, and next thing you know, they're standing next to you as elders. What a privilege to see people mature over the course of years as you pastor them. That is our clear goal. That is why we're working so hard. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. It was He who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity of faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature there it is our goal again attaining the full measure of the fullness of Christ what a delight it is to see people grow up in Christ it's not just helping the weak but shepherding every church member to greater maturity in Christ That's the goal. Do you agonize over the sanctification of your people? Number four, the opportunity to love on the front lines as your people go through crisis and suffering. Think about the way relationships typically work. Person A gets to know person B. They talk together, they hang out together, they grow in a friendship, they grow in trust over time. The process takes time and effort to grow in vulnerability and transparency. That's the way most relationships work. That's the typical way that people build up friendships. Now let's talk about your job. Your job as the pastor shepherd. People come to you, and you know, from the very first meeting, they may not know you that well yet as a pastor. They come in, they sit down, and they open up with some of their deepest and darkest secrets. Right from the beginning, they share with you some incredibly hard and shameful things. What an unusual job that is. What an unusual position God has put you in for people to just bring down those walls and share with you some of the most fragile and difficult things in their life. Forget all the normal present pleasantries. They show up and dump the trash of their life in your front yard, and they expect you to clean it up. After all, shepherds are called to do the dirty work, right? Now, they're foolish sheep. You've seen Christians make dumb, sometimes astoundingly foolish decisions, and you've been there to catch them when they fall or they come back bearing the consequences of their foolishness, and you're there to help them out of the mess that they've created. You know, if I had a a penny for every time I prophetically warned a church member not to go down this route, instead go another route, and instead they did it. In those moments, you pray to have the heart of a father who took on the shame of his wayward son, rather than the heart of the older brother who trumpeted that shame. It's no exaggeration, dear pastor, to say what God did for you in Christ was to take a perverted fool and give him a righteousness of his own son. Don't ever forget that. Remember God's mercy to you and you'll be ready to show mercy to every sinner who walks in the door, regardless of how foolish it is. And you will see all kinds of foolishness. You'll see foolishness where you think, I can't even believe you did that. And yet, what helps you? Remember what God did for you. Go back to what you were before you knew Christ and see the enormity of God's mercy to you. And then, and only then, you'll be ready to show mercy to others. More than a few people have come in into an initial counseling session and have told me, I came expecting condemnation, not mercy. Then they are herding sheep, weak and fragile, who need your tender care. You know, in, in our church, a sexual offender horribly broke into the apartment of a young bride, someone who had just been married, and beat and raped her. It's it's just been one of the hardest situations we faced in our congregation. I mean, they they were no more than within two months of having been married. Now, can you imagine the guilt the husband felt as he was at work that day and found out about it uh, later that afternoon? And you imagine what it was like to show up and help that wife when our staff got on the scene to get her out of that apartment after he had left. I'm typically called in as one of the counseling staff, you know, in situations like that. And after the whole situation broke and our staff was all engaged in it, I was away. And so when I got back on the scene and found out, I mean, I was eager to jump in, but the executive pastor had taken the wife and husband in for that, that week to care for them. He and his wife were doing a marvelous job caring. And so I was waiting. And a few days into it, he called me and said, they're really ready to see you. I'd like to see you right now. And my, you know, pastoral ministry, you you do the hard work of caring for your family well so that when something happens unusual, your your, your family's prepared for you to make the sacrifice. And my wife knew. my My wife knew what was happening. So I said to her, they called. And she said, go. So I did. And I was, this was early on in pastoral ministry for me. So I, you know, I got to the door of the executive pastor's house and I knock on the door and I remember my prayer just thinking, I don't know what I'm doing. Lord, I've never dealt with anything like this. I just don't even know what to say to them. It's such a dreadful situation. So I just prayed like, God, I just need help right now because I don't really think I know what I'm doing as a pastor. Knocked on the door, sat down with them, as the pastor brought them down to spend some time with me. And, you know, it was hard because he, the, 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 the offender had literally beaten her face in. So the whole face was swollen. She couldn't even see through her eye sockets. And so I talked to them. I let them just talk through things. I opened up the word. I, I read to them. I prayed with them. And it was hard. It was really hard. And, 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 and months upon months later, her and I were talking as I met with both of them for a long time to walk through the situation with them. And she said to me, you remember that first meeting? There were two things that helped us more than anything else. Two things that made a real difference. Okay, she had me on the edge of my seat, <laughs> Because, you know, remember, I was standing at the front door going, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> there was no class in seminary that told me what to do in this moment. So what? What was it? Here's the two things. She said, number one, you took us to glory. <laughs> I read my, one of my favorite texts. I read Revelation 21. And as we talked about a, a day when there's no more crying, or mourning, or death, or pain. I said, let's go there right now. Because we need a taste of glory right now as we look at the sin and suffering that we have to face in this fallen world. So that taste of glory was so sweet. But I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, that's one of my favorite texts. It's like, what do you do? You go to your go-to text. <laughs> I go, let's, okay, let's go to Revelation. Glory's a good theme. Let's try this out. <laughs> I didn't realize how much it meant to them, how well it landed. I couldn't have asked for that better myself. But you know what the second thing was? She said, unlike anybody else who saw us that week, you maintain eye contact with me. Now think about the situation. Her face was so beaten in, it was just hard to even look at her. So people couldn't look at her. And She said, it made me feel like a human being again. It just made me feel decent, valued, and respected that you maintain eye contact with me. Glory be to God, you know. (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) I was just trying to look at her because I loved her. (laughs) But God can do much more with you than you can ever expect. This is our ministry to herding sheep. This is our ministry to weak sheep. God will put you in all kinds of situations where, you know, there's not a script for this. <laughs> there's not a program that defines for you what you need to do over the next 20 minutes or three hours or 14 days or six months. And yet with the word and with the spirit in you and with a burden to care for God's flock, you'll, hurt for the, you'll work alongside and care for The weak sheep. That's what we're called to do. What God wants us to do. There are so many other kinds of sheep that need our help. Confused sheep who need our guidance. Wayward sheep who need a stern warning. Angry sheep who need to grow in control of their fits of rage. Every problem, every burden, every struggling sheep that shows up provides an opportunity to see God work. And opportunity is a key word there. It doesn't matter what the problem is that walks in your door. It's an opportunity for the gospel to show up. Our sinful hearts are prone to see problems as problems, obstacles, burdens, disappointments, and frustrations. Yet every difficulty in this life is a chance to grow in greater maturity in Christ. Your people don't see that. Often sin is so blinded them or dumbed them down that they can't see beyond the boundaries of their own problems. But you can. <laughs> you can see beyond those boundaries. You can see hope on the other side of that fence. You can see glory on the other side of that fence. You can see redemption on the other side of that fence. You can see grace working in the most hopeless of situations. That's why we're there. <laughs> that is your number one job description. You are to bring hope to the hopeless. Job description number one. You're to see beyond the boundaries that they can't see beyond and say, look at what God can do. Job description number two, you're used in very difficult situations to reconcile struggling sheep back to their God. That's what God asks of us. Number five, our skill as shepherds. Listening and probing hearts. Now, listening is the most basic thing you can do for a hurting person. Now, forget that magical moment when you speak the tweetable line that comes out of your mouth and the person suddenly becomes better. No, you know, (laughs) those kinds of things only happen in Disney movies and counseling books. I I don't know about you, but they don't seem to happen in my counseling sessions. (laughs) Listening is actually really hard work in order to become good at it. Most of us don't have the patience to really listen to people. The biblical picture of a bad listener is the proverbial fool. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Proverbs 29.20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is no more hope for a fool than for him. What's the biblical picture of this proverbial fool? It's one who doesn't listen and understand, but seek, speaks too quickly. He's impulsive. He answers before he hears. He doesn't take time to hear. Uh, he doesn't take time to hear. Rather, he just speaks. In 18.2, the fool finds pleasure only in saying what he or she wants to say. In 18.13, because of his impulsive speech, he lacks understanding. He's deemed foolish or shameful, whereas one commentator put, put it stupid and a disgrace. Contrast that with James. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, James one nineteen. James' encouragement is the exact opposite of the proverbial fool, which is to be quick to hear and slow to speak. So let me give you a little bit of practical application. How good of a listener really are you? Now let's just be honest. How good of a listener are you? I'm going to give you a scale. Here's the scale from one to 10. One is the poorest listener on the planet. 10 is the best listener in the entire universe. Okay, just take a moment and rate yourself. Where are you on a scale of one to 10? Get a number in your mind. Well, here's what I want you to do with it. I want you to test your rating. Now, for all of you who are married, You're gonna go ask your spouse this. (laughs) You're gonna say, honey, how would you rate me on a scale of one to 10? Worst listener on the planet, best listener in the universe. And now if you're not married, if you're single, then you're just gonna go ask someone who knows you really well, like your roommate or your best friend or your parents. And be prepared. Now don't don't ask for feedback unless you're gonna be humble in the response. Because a number of guys when I ask them this come back and say, "Well, I said to my wife, uh, honey, I, I why did you rate me as a 3? I thought I was a 7.'" <laughs> and if you're prepared for her to explain why she rated you as a 3 or 4, you'll grow as a listener. <laughs> the the feedback she'll give you will help you understand how you need to grow. So go do that. I mean go go take a chance take a chance and figuring out whether You need to grow in terms of your skills as listening. Now, in addition to listening, to get to know someone, you've got to ask questions. That's a basic skill of shepherding. You're not shopping for circumstantial details. Asking questions that collect information about a person's life is easy. You know, you can ask me questions about where was I born? Where did I grow up? Where do I go to school? What do I do right now? You know, all all those are are circumstantial questions. They are real facts about my life, but they don't get very deep into my life. There's a danger because we tend to collect a lot of factual data about a person's life and think we really get to know them by simply collecting that factual data. I'm looking for depth questions. In in, in my mind, depth questions is heart-oriented questions. They're, They're harder because they're more intrusive they attempt to expose the most central part of what a person is and who they are, which is their heart. Matthew 12, 34, Luke 6, 43-45, Proverbs 4, 23-25, all verses related to the heart, which is the central and core part of who I am. Pursuing a person's heart helps you to understand the thoughts and desires and cravings and motives that lie behind all of their behavior. And it's not casual conversation. You know, if I want to get to know someone, it's like excavation where I'm at an archaeological site and I really want to dig underneath the circumstances to get to know what's going on. So I might know what you do for work, but I want to know the war that's going on in your heart when you're mad at your boss. That tells me a lot more about who you are. Or I might want to know, you know, that... Even though you've struggled with your oldest son in parenting, I want to know what's behind your anger. What are you really worshiping? What, do you, what really matters to you? Or I, I want to know if, if you're like not doing well in your employment, I want to know what, what's going on in terms of what you really trust in your life. Are you relying on yourself? Or are, are you really relying on God? What are you ultimately worshiping? I can learn a lot about your life, but I want to unearth the heart. Here's my challenge to you. We all have different concentric circles of relationships. You know, the closest circle is that inner circle. The people who are in your innermost circle are the people who know you best. Usually, hopefully, there are a few people who you've been just completely transparent with, who who know you in and out. Often that's your spouse, but hopefully there's one or two other people in there, we are close into your heart. And then there's other circles of relationships that we each have. There are some people in those middle circles and those outer circles, the relationship is mediocre to superficial, that if you pursued them with these kind of depth questions, it would change the nature of the conversations that you have. If, I, if uh, my, my, my older children are all Washington football fans, And so, therefore, the rivalry in my home is I'm a Dallas Cowboy fan. (laughs) That is the rivalry on Sundays in our home. Um, And so, you know, we can talk a lot about football, as I do with my kids, but I really care about what's going on in their heart. I care a lot about what's going on in their heart. And I do that. There's a lot of guys who I know who are the NFL fans in our congregation. We do a lot of talking about conversations about football, but I, I don't want to spend all my time talking about football. That's not why I'm employed in this church. I'm here to help you worship God. And so the challenge is take some of those superficial relationships and press it with the kind of questions that is going to make them at times feel uncomfortable. Now, if you employ this this coming week, say you, you do that in one of these relationships where It's been superficial for quite a while. Some of them will go, whoa, we don't do that. That's not our relationship. Let's stick with football. And then you can just blame me. Well, Dr. Deepak said at the conference that I should ask you these questions. I'll take the hit for that. That's fine. And then you back away and you keep ministering and you pray for the day where they do open up. But some of them, there are a lot of people in terminally superficial relationships. And they're desperate for something deeper. (laughs) And if you press in and you ask some things that they're not expecting, you'd be surprised at the way the, the nature of the relationship will change. So that's my challenge. Just think about a few names where the relationship could go further if you took some time to press in. And just be surprised at what God might do in giving an opportunity to, to care for them in those relationships. Number six, the bigger picture, a culture of discipling and care. This is dovetail really well, I hope, with what Dave said this morning. Sheep have an extraordinary ability to consume your time, especially the weak sheep. They have a huge ability to take over your schedules. Are you being proactive in raising up elders and leaders among you, or are you taking a defensive posture of simply just putting out fires? Be very wary of letting the burdens of hurting and angry and confused sheep fall exclusively on your shoulders. Just do not do that. You do them a disservice and you also do a disservice to others as you deny the members of your church an opportunity to love herding sheep. We know that God has designed the church as the key institution to advance His kingdom. We're meant to. For relationships in gospel community, individual Christianity is an anathema. It's an anathema. It should never exist. It's a complete, it's completely wrong to ever think you can do it on your own. I established discipling and investment in other people's lives as a priority for Christians in our church. So, you know, they they get taught it in our membership class. There's a whole class on a covenant commitment to one another, investment in each other's lives. But then the next step after they finish our membership class is a membership interview. And in that interview, if you're watching me, in the interview, I would say to them at one point, we understand Christians should be discipling and be discipled by others. We, We think whether you're extroverted or introverted, whatever your personality is, you need to be engaged with others for the sake of your own soul. Look them in the face and I say, are you willing to do that? And I want to have that conversation. I want that as a clear expectation before they join. Cause I want to set, I want to set the culture, our church culture standard as one, as we're not going to do this on our own. That's just not what we do here. If you join this church, if you're a member of this congregation, then you're going to be engaged with others. So we, we also give them a statement of faith to sign and then a church covenant. The church covenant is just a summary of the obligations that we have as Christians towards one another. I mean, churches have done this for for, for, for decades upon decades. Uh, we, we found the old church covenant, the church covenant our church originally started with, dusted it off and started using it again. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like a mortgage. You know, they, if you verbally commit, To a mortgage, the bank would never go for it. What do they have you do? They have you actually sign paperwork. Well, we have people sign a covenant. Because my expectation is when you sign that covenant, you're signing away isolation. That's what it means. As they become a part of the church, I encourage them not to isolate themselves, but to build their life into others and let others build their lives into them. Here's the principle I want them to understand. I want to encourage them to build relationships when things are good before suffering enters into their life. It's not when suffering comes that you should suddenly be scrambling to find other people to help you. Long before suffering comes, you need to build into the church and the church build into you so that when that season hits, the spiritual safety net is already waiting for you. It's already there to capture you. And so we want to teach this. Now, the one another text in the Bible, I think, make really clear the responsibilities that Christians have toward each other. There's a lot of ways I can build a biblical argument for this whole idea. But I think if you just run through the one another text in Scripture, it makes clear the obligations of one Christian to another what it looks like. And let me just read a few of them there to you. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans chapter 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. Romans chapter 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Romans chapter 15, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Romans chapter 15 again, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Ephesians chapter 4, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians chapter 4 again, be kind and compassionate one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. and Then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. So what are these verses saying to us? The verses are speaking to Christians and the general direction is to oblige Christians to love one another, be devoted to each other, to honor one another, to accept each other, to be patient with each other, to be kind, to be compassionate, to forgive one another and even to instruct one another. There is an obligation for Christians to be invested in each other's lives. I think that's unavoidable if you're reading your Bibles, to see that Scripture makes really clear we're to be in each other's lives. The Bible makes that extremely clear. So as you can tell, this is a priority for our whole church. You want a culture where the entire church is invested in discipling and caring for one another with the word. Now, when I say culture, I'm not referring to a set program. I'm saying this is something that is in the DNA of your church. This is how Christians understand they should live. Your members don't have to sign up somewhere or join a program in order to know that they need to love one another and do each other spiritual good. So, you know, if I were to get hit by a bus... Well, we, actually, let me do it this way. Uh, we go to our denominational meetings every June for the SBC. And so that's the one time our whole staff, our paid staff is on a plane together. So if that plane goes down, it's up to the lay elders to keep it going. So let's say that plane goes down. I do not want the members to think this was Mark Devers' program, or this was Deepak Regie's program, or this was Andy Johnson's program. No, I want them to see that this is in the Bible, and therefore this is what they should do as Christians. Long past when I go to the grave, I want them to understand the responsibility to be investing in other Christians so that that then will go on for decades as they live as fruitful Christians. As a pastor, you are the primary culture shaper in your church. What you preach on, what you teach on, sets the values and priorities for your congregation. Is this a value you hold out to them? Is this a priority that you offer to your people? I mean, there's a thousand things that we hold out to our members, saying to do and to follow and to pray and to think about. Yet, is discipling, is the investment in others, is the one-on-one ministry for each other's spiritual good, is that a priority that you regularly hold out to your members. If, it not, if it's not, make it a priority. You know, make it more important part of what you do. Because how do the members know how to do this? Well, they watch your example. They watch you as you do it yourself. But I think the main way they see this is if you teach it, and 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 guess what? Then you teach it again. Because <laughs> that's what gets it into the bloodstream of your church. That's how they come to see, oh, the Bible tells me to do this. And if they love the word, then they'll go out and do it. And then it takes a little bit of helping them to understand what it looks like and helping them to understand what investment is. But that's more just confidence and encouragement. But once they develop the conviction to do it, then, man, then you're sending them loose for decades, for decades of fruitful ministry and investing in the church. And what this does, if enough members, just picture this, if enough members in your church get it, if they begin to understand it, it changes the whole culture of the church. The whole congregation operates differently. Now, I wonder if you have one of these kind of guys. So uh, we have a balcony like you do. And so this guy showed up for services. And guess when he showed up? After the first song. He always drifted in after the first song, after welcome and introductions, sat up in the balcony. And guess why he left when he left? Right at the final hymn. <laughs> he never stuck around. <laughs> he, he left always. And I could see it because our, our, our sanctuary is a bit more of a circle, a um, semicircle. So we sit, our family, directly across from the balcony. So I was literally, as a pastor, watching this every week for weeks. Here's the fun part of the story the congregation noticed so then you know members start grabbing him as he's heading out the door <laughs> start getting to know him <laughs> then members start inviting him out to lunch <laughs> then members start meeting up with him during the week and you just see step by step by step they start drawing him in the best part about it it was not the paid staff It was the everyday members of the church who did this. They're the ones who were looking out and saying, why is that guy leaving every week like this? One of us needs to go talk to him. One of us needs to invite him out to lunch. One of us needs to ask him the hard questions. One of us needs to figure out what's going on in his life. One of us needs to know if he loves Christ. One of us needs to be invested in his life. I love that. (laughs) You know what a joy that is for me as a pastor? See members who get it? And so, you know, that guy, years later, as I'm talking to him about his initial time at the church, he said to me, this is a really hard place to be an anonymous Christian. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. I do not want you hiding in our pews. (laughs) I don't think that should exist in our church. I want our members to be bulldogs. I want them to go after you. I want them to notice these things. I want them to do it not because it's a program where we told them you must do it. I want them to do it because they love Jesus and they've been reading their Bibles. And that's what makes them do it. And then we add on, we've helped them by showing it in their Bibles because we've taught it and we've taught it and we've taught it. That's what I want. And I know you want this too. I know you want this in your congregation where you want the members to get it. I mean, I do it selfishly because I'm the counseling pastor. And every time a member gets it and goes after someone, that's honestly less work for me. So there's really selfish motives in it some days, but there's a lot more godly motives because I think this is what the gospel looks like. It's not just the paid staff doing the dirty work. It's the members who get what the gospel is, and they go after each other because they understand this is what Christianity looks like. That's what creates gospel community. That what creates a kind of different kind of bright witness that we want our community to see and people to experience. Finally, number seven, our perseverance, making it to the end. To you who are weary shepherds, some of you are tired and drained And sad and confused and discouraged. A few of you might be hanging on by a thread, especially after the last 18 months. My goodness, you've weathered all kinds of storms that have made you exhausted from pastoral ministry. I'm speaking especially to you. Don't give up. Your Savior is great. Your circumstances are hard, your suffering's painful, your spouse and children are struggling, and yet Jesus knows. Remarkable that scripture says, "O man greatly loved, fear not. Be strong and of good courage. Your God is great, not small. Your Savior is strong, not weak. Your God is mighty and holy and glorious." And you You are his own, and he's not going to abandon you. Oh, dear shepherd, keep holding on. You are a sheep, not just a shepherd. And you're in need of God's grace, too. So every Sunday when you preach the great grace of the gospel, you're not doing it just for your people. You're doing it for you, too. You're doing it because your heart needs it more than Anybody else in the church that 's what keeps us out of trouble. I like mike emlett 's phrase, uh, dr. Emlett from ccf he He talks about that we must never just traffic in truth if i 'm standing up here and preaching it because it 's just for you, then i 'm in trouble. <laughs> I need it more than you do, because I know the extent of my depravity. I know the wickedness of my heart. And I know I need God's grace in order to stand up today and make it through today in order to get to tomorrow. You need that too. You need the word for your own soul's sake. It's far too common to have days when you say, God, really? Really? After the last 18 months, you're going to give me another mess like this? Really? Do I have to face another difficulty like this? Really? You know how hard my week has already been? Really? You know how discouraged my wife is right now? You Really? You know how hard one of my kids is having? How hard of a time they're having right now? Do you? Are you really giving me another one? <laughs> do you know how many I've faced over these years? How much more can I bear, Lord? It's so easy to be overwhelmed with the needs and burdens that are right in front of you. And it's easy to lose sight of the long game. The burdens are overwhelming sometimes. The demands are hard of the pastorate. But I want to be in the long game. (laughs) I don't want to just do this for five years or 10 or 15 or 20 I want to be here 30 years from now. I want to still be standing up and be declared faithful. Hmm. So keep your eyes set on heaven. Hmm. Stay faithful, keep praying, and keep laboring. What did we talk about? Number one, we talked about Jesus condescended to us and sympathized with us. So also we need to initiate just like he did. Number two, our responsibility is to shepherd God's flock. That's an enormous privilege. Number three, our goal is to see our members mature in Christ. Number four, our opportunity is to love the foolish and the hurting sheep. Number five, we grow in our skill as shepherds as we listen and probe hearts. Number six, the big picture, we want to see a culture of discipling and care in our churches. And number seven, we persevere by remembering we too are sheep who need the grace of God. Brothers, you labor as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Shepherding is hard, but it's a joyous labor. It's challenging and difficult, but it's an enormous privilege. Glory be to God that he's given each one of us this kind of opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord, we understand that as you have called us to be under shepherds, that it's a hard work, Lord. There are many difficult days, but not only have you remembered us through your son, you give us strength and grace and hope in the hardest moments. We can count on that and we rely on that because we know that it's true. Thank you for Jesus who saved us and is sanctifying us even right now. We pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.